Word of God, I want to invite you to open to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We will pick up where we left off last week in verse 30. John 5, beginning in verse 30. The title of the message this morning is Jesus on Trial. And as he is on trial, he gives a defense of four witnesses that we see in this passage. And now Jesus is not officially on trial but he is in the eyes of those who are there charging him and hearing what he is saying. And so as we, uh, before we begin, let's read through the text. If you found your place, say amen. Follow along as I read. Verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies of me, I, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you. That you do not have the love of the Father or love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let us pray. Father, give us eyes to see, minds to comprehend, and hearts to love your word. Holy Spirit. Move in our midst and speak to us, illumine us that we would understand and see and obey your word. We ask for your hand to guide us and direct us this morning. And we submit to you, Lord Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Really, the premise of the passage this morning is that we would understand to deny Jesus's deity or his oneness with God the Father is to deny the very nature and essence of who God is. And this is really why Jesus has been placed on trial, so to speak, in this passage, why we find him giving a defense of four different witnesses that testify to who he is, to his deity, that testify that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God the Son, the incarnate one. And so Jesus, really, in this passage, in in all of his ministry, in the Gospel of John, but here as well, Jesus, he gives us the prism through which we are to view the glory of the Father. And it's at this point that he he starts speaking, and he, he tells and challenges those religious leaders, those Jews who have come questioning him. He speaks to them and confronts them with these witnesses and tells them how they have truly missed that he is the giver of life, that he is the one who is the eternal giver of life. And if they do not open their eyes and see the very gift of God among them, then they will miss him completely. 
It's as if he takes a magnifying glass and holds it up before our eyes and inviting us to fix our gaze upon his life and then through his life to look upward to the Father and to see that, that God is the one who has sent the Son and to see that he and the Father are one and the same. And so in this passage... Jesus is not officially being placed on trial. That doesn't happen till the end of the Gospel of John. But in the eyes of the religious leaders, verse 18 of chapter 5 has already told us they want him dead, right? For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was, not bre- because he was breaking the Sabbath and also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, he's made himself equal with God. He's worked on the Sabbath, commanding the lame man to pick up his pallet, be healed, and to walk. And so that's then. But I would submit to you that while Jesus was certainly on trial then, because those who were watching him were not believing him, those who were listening to him were not hearing him and truly believing him, I would submit to you today that Jesus is on trial today in many of the lives of the people that we come in contact with on a day-to-day basis. Maybe even in our lives, some of us who are here this morning, Jesus is on trial in our own minds. We don't know that we truly believe that he is the one that he says he is and that scripture claims him to be. We in our own minds have placed Christ upon trial, saying, prove to me that you're real. Prove to me that you are who you say you are, that you are who you claim to be. That might even be those who come and gather on Sunday morning in corporate worship. This also is the case outside of the, uh, I was going to say four walls, but outside of our dome here, right? That would be the case that there are many that in the places where we work, the place where we get coffee, even in our own homes, we pray for our children that Jesus might be on trial, saying, those who would, who would say, convince me, show me, teach me, to which we would respond, we pray that God will open their eyes to see that Christ is who he says he is. And so in verses 30 through 32, he really is setting up his defense. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. You know, this verse, verse 30, contains many familiar themes and really kind of forms a bridge between the text we looked at last week and the one we will look at today, that he is judge, namely that he's been given authority to execute judgment because he has been given authority to give life and to grant life. And so we see here, even in this passage, when Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative in verse 30, he is saying that he and the Father are one, and that there is a unity of the essence and the nature of who God the Father and God the Son is, and they cannot act separately. They must act together. Remember, he doesn't say, I won't do anything. Instead, he says, he cannot do anything. Verse 19 of chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. Not He won't do anything of Himself. He can't do anything of Himself. But in verse 30, there's a, a change in the discourse language that's happening. There's a change in the argument. At verse 29 and verse 30, there's a change. It goes from the second person singular pronoun where Christ is referring to himself, the Son of Man, the Son of God, to the first person in verse 30. In fact, he uses it eight different times in our English translation in verse 30 to speak of himself. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. You see, the point is significant. Jesus moves into an all-out defense and really kind of turns the table on his listeners as they are accusing him of being someone he is not. They're accusing him of making claims that he can't substantiate, but really he's saying, I am substantiating these claims. The fact that the Father has sent me substantiates these claims. The fact that he manifests his power through me and that me and the Father, we are one and the same and that the work that I do is the same work that the Father does. This is what he is saying. This substantiates. So he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. And in this we see really the love of the Father revealed through God 
showing Jesus and telling Jesus all things. And the love of the Son reciprocated to the Father through His perfect sonship and His perfect obedience to the Father. And so that we have the express will of God communicated to the Son. And then we have the Father, or or the Son, carrying out the express will of God, perfectly obeying so that the very things that Christ does are the very things that God is telling Christ to do. This is what He's saying. This is why, in a moment, we'll see his testimony is sufficient to stand on its own. Because the work of Jesus is wrapped up in accomplishing the will of the one who sent him, God the Father. And so he says in verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What Jesus is saying here is not that his testimony can't stand on its own. Some have read this verse and commented that it contradicts chapter 8, verse 14 of the Gospel of John, where Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came, where I come from or where I am going. Jesus is not contradicting himself between chapter 5 and his, his discussion or his monologue as he gives his defense here in chapter 8. That's not what's happening. Instead, what Jesus is saying here is that according to their standards for upholding the Torah, that his testimony alone is not admissible. But what we can't miss is that Jesus is not claiming that his testimony stands alone. His testimony is not alone because he's already stated that he cannot act independently of the Father. Therefore, in one sense, Jesus would have to act independently of the Father in order to have his testimony stand alone about himself. Does that make sense? He'd have to act alone. In other words, he'd have to act in contradiction to what the Father has already commanded that he would do. And so the argument returns on on the reciprocal relationship between the Father and the Son, and it really speaks of his perfect sonship Jesus sets up a defense by couching it in terms of establishing who he is. He is Messiah. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is of the same nature and essence of the Father. And so in verse 32, there is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. What is this testimony? That he is the Son of God. That he is the one who is the giver of eternal life because he possesses life in himself. He is the one who is an executor of judgment because one, he is the son of man. And two, because he gives life, he can also execute judgment because those who are judged are the ones, remember, who have rejected the revelation of who Jesus Christ is as the one come from the Father And so the first witness that he calls on is John the Baptist in verse 33. John the Baptist is the first witness. He calls his first witness. Verse 33 reads, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. If you remember back in John chapter 1, there was a delegation that came out to meet John in verse 24. Now, they had been sent by the Pharisees, it tells us. This delegation came out to see what was going on with this man who has been out here baptizing and people are coming to him and, and he's declaring to them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's, he's creating this big stir. What was the testimony that John put forward? Well, the testimony that John put forward, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1, I just want to walk through real quick to, to chapter 5. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him, right? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And then down in verse 29, his testimony continues where he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing out who Jesus was as he came up to meet him there, the waters of baptism, when John was baptizing others. And then verse 34, John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. 
Continuing down in verse 36 of chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist says. What's his testimony? His testimony is that Jesus Christ is the the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one who has come, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the promised Messiah. And if you continue over into chapter 3, John comes back on the scene, beginning in verse 22, but perhaps one of the most famous statements we all remember that John the Baptist said, speaking of Christ, he said, he must increase, and I must, what? Decrease, right? John recognizing his place before God the Father, that he was just simply an instrument being used of God. He was one who was to be used to proclaim the message, but he was not the one to receive the glory. Instead, he was pointing all glory to Christ. You see, John's testimony was loud and clear. I am not the Christ. I came to prepare the way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. And in in verse 35, Jesus says, verse 34, excuse me, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I I say these things so that you may be saved. And he goes on in verse 35 to to tell about who John was back in chapter 5. He was a lamp. He was burning and shining brightly and you were willing to rejoice for a little while. You see, Jesus isn't dependent on man's testimony. He, he says, I'm calling John as a witness, but you also need to know that I'm not dependent upon man's testimony. Why? Because God the Father has testified. God has testified on behalf of the Son. The testimony that Jesus had, verse 32, is from God. 1 John 5, 9 says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that <clears throat> he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is life in his son. You see, Jesus isn't dependent on John's testimony to reveal his identity, to reveal who he is. And I I want you to hear this. While man's testimony can point us toward Christ, it's not solely sufficient to stand on its own. My testimony, your testimony, we can point others to Christ through our testimony, but there's got to be more than just our testimony. They must encounter the word of God. When people hear our testimony, they must, be, they must be pressed into the Word of God. For it's the Word of God that has power to transform lives. It's like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where the people of the Samaritan village, they were initially drawn to Christ, right? Why? Because she went back and she told them everything. This man has told me everything I've ever done. And because of that, the people believed. But then there's this disclaimer at the end of John chapter 4 in the Samaritan woman. The people then began coming out to meet Jesus. And it says they no longer believed because of her word, but they believed because of the word that he spoke. They believed because they had heard Christ's word. And salvation occurs upon the word of Christ, hearing and believing because the word points us to Christ. And introduces us to Christ. Thus John the Baptist's role was to prepare the way for people to believe. But they must encounter Christ for themselves. And this is exactly the point of verse 35. He was the lamp. John the Baptist was the lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in its light. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about verse 35. First is that John the Baptist is referenced in past tense, right? Three different times. It says in verse 35, he was the lamp, he was burning, and was shining for, and you were willing to rejoice. John the Baptist is dead at this point as Christ is speaking and challenging these religious leaders that are gathered there. 
But it, it's not hard for us to imagine the contrast between the lamp's function in shining light and when it shines light, right at night in a dark place, and the contrast with the sun and the brightness of the sun and why there is no need for a lamp to shine in the midst of the day because the light of the sun is so much greater than the light of the lamp. And so what Jesus is saying about John is he was not the he was not the light. Jesus is saying that John was the light bearer. He was the one that bore light. He was the lamp, the smaller light. He was not the true light, but he was the one that that pointed into the darkness. He was the one that came to open people's eyes to see and be ready for the coming Messiah. We see his role evidenced even in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 which says and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart you see what was happening in John the Baptist's life he was burning and he was shining brightly and from John's perspective he was he was burning brightly in his witness for Christ. He was expending himself and boldly heralding the message, calling people to be prepared to make preparation for Christ's arrival. He was announcing the Messiah is here. And as he was announcing the Messiah was, is here, there was a great following that began to to congregate and and people began coming out and continued to come out to John the Baptist and 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 the leaders were taking note of it people were coming and they were flocking to him and they were following him who is this man who dresses in weird clothes and eats weird food it's John the Baptist out in the desert he's got this message saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand is at hand he's he's this prophet in the midst of 400 years of silence who is who seems to be true He seems to be real, and there seems to be something different about his message, you see. And people were flocking to him. They were following. They were coming and hearing what he had to say. And so Jesus tells them, you were willing willing to rejoice for a while in his light until his lamp was snuffed out by an immoral king. You see, he took that stand on his convictions, and he wouldn't stand for King Herod's immoral Lifestyle and his immoral relationship with his brother's wife. The light of John the Baptist shined upon Herod's evil heart and the immoral life, and it ended up costing him his life. But the point here is that the Jewish leaders were representing even the Israelite people, and they were attracted to this messianic announcement. They were following the crowds, and it was the popular thing to do. There was great excitement about Messiah arriving. But get this, when the truth of who John the Baptist was pointing to surfaced, and people had to come to grips with the reality of who John the Baptist was pointing to, like a moth is drawn to a flame, when the flame goes out, they scatter. And so did the people. The reality is, many times we come to Christ with this preconceived notion of what Christ looks like or who he might be or what he might be able to do for us and that's not it at all you see when we come to Christ we cannot come with this idea of what Christ can do for us when we come to Christ we must come embracing the truth of who he has revealed himself to be when the truth of who Christ was did not match their perceived reality about who they thought he should be, they walked away. Many do that today. They're promised something else, trying to get people to come into the door, appealing to the masses, trying to be relevant in the midst of culture, all of these different things. Whatever we can do, we just need to get more people in this place. We, just need, we need to fill every seat. That's not the point at all. The point is knowing the God of creation in the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing that he has given his life that we might have eternal life. 
knowing that he has satisfied the eternal, con- the eternal payment that would demand my life with his own. He has, he has paid that and satisfied the ransom that would be held out for me, and he has purchased me. He has redeemed. He has redeemed us through his blood. Church, we, we like many... We want to stand tall and proclaim like John the Baptist. We want to proclaim the truth. We want to be a lamp shining brightly. We want to be a lamp proclaiming the word of the Lord. We want to be the lamp declaring the truth, shining the light of Christ into the world. We need to be and are called to be light bearers. Jesus calls upon John as the first witness of the testimony He's a light bearer. He's one who has been bearing the truth, pointing the way to Christ. Let us be lamps that burn and shine brightly in Baton Rouge and for the nation and across the nations for the glory of Christ. Let us be bearers in our own neighborhoods and in our own homes and in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, on campus, in the dorms, wherever we find ourselves. Let us remember that we are to be light bearers for Christ. Remember, Jesus is on trial and John comes as one who is the light bearer. And many people that we encounter, church, believer, many people that you encounter, have placed Jesus on trial, and your life as a light bearer will be part of the witness that they call on, and it ought to point them to Scripture. Church, let's ask God to do a work in and through us first, then that we might impact and affect this city and that we might affect the nations, that we would be light bearers here, beginning with one another first, encouraging and exhorting one another that God would do this work of transformation in our own hearts, giving us the hunger and the desire to expend ourselves and to burn ourselves, not burn ourselves, but burn out for His glory, right? That we would burn and shine brightly for Christ, as John the Baptist did. Second, the second witness he calls on is the witness of works. The witness of works in verse 36. He says, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. This is the testimony that's greater than the testimony of John the Baptist. These works the Father has given Christ to accomplish. The question that I that I ask when I come to this passage is why, why do the works testify that the Father has sent Christ? What is it about these works that testify that the Father has sent Christ? And I, I want to draw our attention back to John chapter 3, verse 2, where one of these religious leaders has come to Jesus in the guise of night, under the cloak of darkness, so that he's not seen by others, most probably, But he is, we learn in verse 10, that he is the teacher, not a teacher, but the teacher of Israel. Very high-ranking religious ruler, right? And in verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus, Nicodemus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's a man who has eyes to see. He's acknowledged that, No one can do these works that Christ was doing unless God the Father is with him. We contrast that with what we see here in chapter 5 of the religious leaders as they are coming to Christ and challenging him even in the works that he is doing. And so why do the works testify the Father sent him? Well, one, we see Nicodemus' words showing us that they are evidenced and, and manifested the power of God in the works that Christ has done. It's undeniable for Nicodemus. But secondly, it reveals, I think, the character of God. Because in the work that Christ is doing, there is the the essence and the nature of God working through Christ in unity together. The Father and the Son being one and the same. Looking back at verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, The Son can do nothing 
of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. And then in verse 30, he says again, I can do nothing on my own initiative, right? Revealing the true nature of who God is that he has revealed himself in the son. God, the father through God, the son, the character of God, the father being revealed through God, the son. The works testify that the father sent him also, though, because they show the power of Christ, the power of God in and through Christ. I won't ask you to turn there, but just listen for a moment as just I I walk through only the gospel of John, not all the other uh, synoptics, Matthew, Mark or Luke, to see the different miracles and uh, the wonders that Christ did there. But just in the gospel of John, because it's expressly what John is trying to communicate as he walks through the book of signs from John one through John 11. In John chapter two, Jesus turned, evidencing his power, the power of God, Jesus turned the water into wine, showing that it's through him that he brings a new way of purification. They were the cleansing jars, the ceremonial cleansing jars that he turned water into wine in. John chapter 4, healing of the nobleman's son, saying that he can speak and bring and issue life. John chapter 5, the healing of the lame man, telling this man to get up and to carry his mat. And the man stands up and begins walking. John chapter 6, multiplying of bread. Enough bread to feed four people becomes enough bread to feed 5,000. Jesus himself having power over even food to multiply it, showing that he himself is the source, the giver of life, the bread of life. John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. John chapter 9, Jesus gives sight to the blind. John chapter 11, he raises a dead man who's been in the tomb for four days. His name is Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth and they say, loose him. And then they loosed all of, took all the bandages off. And here's Lazarus being raised from the dead, showing that he has the power over death itself to raise a dead man from the grave, and then John chapter 20, the ultimate climatic work that John works up to in the gospel. It's when Christ raises himself from the dead, defeating sin and death, exercising power and authority and dominion over death. Christ is the one who has come to give life. Christ is the one who is God in flesh, God the Son dwelling among us. And yet the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews are ready to reject this one. The point in the works and Jesus calling the works to be a witness and to be part of his defense is that they point to the glory of God because they have significance in redemption through him on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and it's through Christ and the cross, death, burial, and resurrection that men have life by believing upon his name. Consequently, Jesus is saying there is no other way. If there's another God that somebody comes to worship That God doesn't exist. Because to deny and to reject Jesus Christ is to reject God the Father. That has to do with our third witness. He calls the Father as the witness in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he says, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. I don't know if Jesus is talking and referencing his baptism when when after he comes up out of the water, the dove descends or or the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and and lights on him. And Jesus, you hear they hear the audible voice from God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know if it's if it's that that he's talking about or just in general, the general reference to the father's revelatory work through Christ. We see it in verses 19 through 29. God, the father has revealed himself, showing himself to the Son. So he calls, he calls the Father as the third witness, and then he really, in doing so, he levels three indictments against those who are listening. I think these are indictments that we 
we need to hear and even take in in our own hearts, in our own lives, evaluate our own walks with the Lord, just independently of others, just individually, and certainly as a, as a corporate body, but individually where we are standing in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The three indictments, the first one is, you've not heard His voice at any time. He's challenging those religious leaders and those who are listening that they are missing the very voice of God speaking through Christ Himself. They're not like Moses who would speak with God in Exodus chapter 33, 11, or the reference to John 3.34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without <clears throat> He gives the Spirit without measure. John 17, 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. Jesus prays in the the high priestly prayer speaking about his disciples. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus says, because you have rejected me, you have not heard the voice of the Father You have not truly communed with the Father. And he says, nor seen his form. You haven't seen his form either. Not like Jacob in Genesis 32, 30 and 31, who had wrestled with God and said that he saw God face to face. The question I have is, Jesus himself claims to be God in flesh, right? Jesus the Son revealed to mankind And Jesus tells Philip over in John, turn to John 14, verse 8. Jesus is telling his disciples, giving them comfort that he's about to depart. He will soon be departing and uh, ascending to the Father. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. What's Jesus saying? saying, because you reject me, you've not seen the Father. For he tells Philip over in John 14, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. And these who are having the face-to-face dialogue, face-to-face discussion with Christ, they have seen Christ, yet they are denying that he is the one who's come from God. But the Father himself has testified And so what we see is that rejection of Jesus is rejection of God. Then he tells them in verse 38, you don't have his word abiding in you. Now, this might have been the most difficult one for them to hear and to sit back without saying anything or even uh, all piling on top of Jesus when he's saying this. This is an inflammatory statement. Because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they... They made it a point to memorize the Torah. They made it a point to know the Scripture. It was their business. I mean, they would would dissect Scripture in the most minute degree, line upon line. They would break it down word upon word, even counting and numbering the letters and coming up with a, a median number in all of the words. I mean, they had made it their job to really dissect the Scripture, right? But Jesus tells them, you don't have His Word abiding in you. One of the charges in the Old Testament called the Shema that God's people were to live under, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Listen, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word, the psalmist says, in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. How can Jesus make such a statement when they have spent so much time studying and memorizing the word? I'll tell you how he can make a statement. Because if they truly had the word of God in their life, abiding in them, written in their heart, hiding it in their heart, they would have recognized Christ's visitation. But instead, as the prologue of John's gospel, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. For them to miss Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is to miss God, the God of the old covenant. And many people in religions today claim to worship God but fail to realize that what one does with the revelation of Christ, so one does with respect to God the Father. If we dismiss the revelation of Christ, we dismiss God the Father. If we reject the revelation of Christ, we reject God the Father. If we reject the truth of God's Word and who God reveals Himself to be through Christ, then we reject God the Father. And so he challenges these religious leaders, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he has sent. Church, let us be a people who do have the word abiding in us. Let us not be a people that will assemble or gather together corporately to listen to a word preached or to go into a Bible study just for the sake of gaining and increasing our knowledge about God. Instead, let us be certain that we, when we come before God or, or read God's Word or spend time in God's Word in the mornings, that we are doing so that we might know God, not just know about God, right? The goal is to know God, not know about Him. If we just know about Him, there's no, there's no personal relationship there. But the goal of God's word is to introduce us to know who God is. It brings us to knowing who he is and experiencing him. And so he introduces the works. He introduces the witness of the father that the father has testified. But they hadn't heard. They hadn't seen. And they didn't have God's word abiding. May we have God's word abiding in us and then last witness that he calls is the witness of Scripture. The witness of Scripture, the fourth witness, this last witness continues in the same vein of them not having their the word abiding in them, the religious leaders. As I mentioned, their business, it was their business to know the word. But he tells them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In fact, it was a rabbinic tradition that they would take a young boy and uh, they would bring him and they would uh, even blindfold him and they would take the, uh, the, the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments written on stone uh, or a slate and they would put honey on it and they would have the young boy lick. Uh, they would have the young boy lick the honey off and say, taste and see that the, the Lord is good. Taste and see that God's word is sweet. Taste and see that it's wonderful and it's delightful. The point was that they were, they were to love. They, they, they initially did this to show the, their love and their adoration for the Scriptures. But you see, they began searching the Scriptures, thinking that in them they would find eternal life. In their search and all of their study and all of their diagramming and dissecting, they missed the complete point of the Scripture. And that was that it pointed to God. That's why Bible is not to be just some English book that we use in order to teach English. It is to be used in order to, uh, to lead us to a place where we come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would memorize the Torah. They would study the Torah. They would learn it. But Jesus tells them the scriptures pointed to the source of life, not life in and of itself. D.A. Carson says a common rabbinic thought was this. The more study of the law, the more life. 
And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. Now, the scripture that Jesus is referencing in verses 39 through 47 here, he's he's referencing all of the Old Testament, beginning with the Torah, but not just the Torah, looking at the, the prophets and also the writings. Jesus claims that all of scripture points to the revelation of who he is, the one who gives life. Old Testament leads us to Christ. New Testament communicates to us of who Christ is. The scriptures refer to Christ, teach us, instruct us, point us to know Christ. And those religious leaders had missed the point. They had missed the boat. Verse 42, he tells them, I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You know, it's indicting on us that we too can search the scriptures, parsing every verb, researching the text critically and still miss the revelation of God in Christ. We don't come to Scripture for knowledge alone. We ought to come to know God. We study the Word that we might know the God of the Word. Maybe this illustration will resonate a little bit better with the guys than it necessarily does with the girls, but when you were dating your wife or your husband... You probably received letters from one another. Maybe you didn't, I don't know. But most probably you received letters from one another, especially if you spend any considerable amount of time far apart from one another. Um, and so uh, if you're in college, you, you might be able to identify somewhat with what I'm saying. But uh, maybe the letter that you would receive would even have an extra bonus and it'd be sprinkled with, uh, with perfume or with maybe some cologne and that would kind of help to bring back the memories, right? Because smell, and it's such a powerful sense. Well, you would pull that letter out at various times uh, when missing your, your, your friend, and you'd want to read it and just be reminded of those warm fuzzies, perhaps. And, uh, and so as you'd read this letter, you would be drawn back to those memories and drawn back to those times that you spent together. The question I would ask is, why would you always go back and want to read those letters in times of absence? And the question is, because, or the answer is because it, it points us back to the one that we care about, right? It, it, it brings those memories back to our minds. If you had the option, though, to sit back and continue reading the letter or go and to see the one who wrote the letter, which one would you choose? You would choose to go and see the one who wrote you the letter. But you see, what what happened for the religious leaders here is they had the one who wrote the letter had come to visit them, and they had missed the very point of the letter. They had stayed back to read and to study and to break apart and dissect this letter, but the very one who, had, who the letter was from had come into their midst, and instead of understanding and seeing the letter has pointed to this one, this Savior, they have continued to be mesmerized by the study of this letter. Now, if that were you, and uh, guys, your girlfriend wrote a letter to you, and instead you said, no, I think I'm just going to stay at home, and I'm going to keep reading this letter. Uh, I'll see you later. Uh, I, the relationship probably wouldn't last very long. You'd probably be uh, be dumped before too long, right? Uh, you know, the, the point is clear. Christ is the one that Scripture reveals. And for those religious leaders, they had completely missed the point of the revelation of Scripture that it pointed to Christ. And so when he calls the scripture, the, the writings of Moses and the Torah and the law pointed to Christ. All of scripture points to Christ, that he is the one whom God has revealed. And so he tells us the reason they were caught up in this way was because they wanted to receive glory from one another and not receive uh, or not give glory to God. 
And so he tells him in verse 44, that's what he says in verse 45, he says, Here's, uh, Moses is going to accuse you before the Father because you have missed the very point of what he has said. They've set their hope on him, uh, upon the law, upon this word, but they have missed the one whom it was written about. And so he tells them that they must see and they need to see, they need to realize the testimony that God has given in the person of Christ. It, it's shown through, through John the Baptist who, who challenges us as well to be a lamp shining and burning for the glory of Christ. He shows us that He Himself is God in flesh through the works that He has done. He is God the Son through the works that He has done. And He shows us the witness of the Father that those who reject the Son truly reject the Father and the witness of the Scripture, that life is not in the Scripture, but it points us to the One who is the source and the giver of life. So this morning, I want to ask you, is Jesus on trial in your mind, in your belief? Is there somebody in your life that you know that Jesus is on trial in their life and they're doubting and not believing in Him? I want to challenge you this morning. If you are struggling with believing in Jesus Christ, believing that He is who He says He is and what Scripture reveals Him to be, I want to challenge you this morning to to ask Him, reveal yourself to me, Lord Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to know your presence. Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see. Teach me. Teach me by your word. Show me how your word points me to you. I think we see that here. Christ is the giver of eternal life. He is the living water, the one who can satisfy our souls like none other. He is the one who gives hope, purpose, and he is very present in the lives of all those who believe and trust in Him. And Christ is the one who would grant us salvation and give us life so that at the last day, He mediates to us this new covenant where we enter into the presence of Christ and we are not judged because we have rejected Christ. To reject Christ is to reject God the Father. Let me pray for us this morning. And you respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Father, We thank you that your word is clear. And Father, I pray that you would help us to grasp the wonderful truth and the depth of your word and how it points us to you. How scripture is the the one that gives us the testimony and points us to to see you. That the testimony and the witness that we have today is by your Holy Spirit. Scripture that, that leads us and shows us who you are, that we might know you more. Oh, Lord, we ask that this morning you would give us hearts that long to know you more. Lord, that you would strengthen us to be like John the Baptist, a lamp shining and burning brightly, expending ourselves for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. Lord, thank you for the salvation that you have given us. We ask you that you would strengthen us to respond now as you're leading us in our own hearts. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you.